Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. Our lesson this week has to do with the aspects of Christology called the Advent, the Parousia. This also falls properly under the heading of Eschatology, the Doctrine of the Last Things, but since we are studying in this series of lessons mainly Christology on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've undertaken to take up a discussion of the uh, Doctrine that deals with the Second Coming, and in today's broadcast we are dealing with the manner of His coming, where He is to come to, and also the signs that precede His coming. Now, first of all, in regards to the place of his coming, this place is clearly given. When the Lord Jesus Christ went back to glory in Acts chapter 1, the two young men that stood by told the disciples, the same Jesus which you've seen go into heaven shall return in like manner as you've seen him go. Now, several things here, of course, are salient. We notice, first of all, that it is going back to heaven, the ascension in Acts chapter 1, that a cloud received him up into their sight out of their sight, and so we are told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, he cometh with clouds. The next thing we know about it is that two young men stood by there in shining apparel, and the two young men, of course, all of them are identified, uh, clearly are types of the two men that are on the right and left hand of Jesus Christ at his second advent, Moses and Elijah. The next thing we notice about this very important passage is that Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, says his feet shall stand that day, on the Mount of Olives. Now, we are no more left in doubt about the place of his second coming than we were about the place of his first coming. His first coming was clearly said to be from Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem, he forbid, though thou be small among the province of Judah, yet of thee shall come, uh, he is to be ruler of my people Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting. Now, even the unsaved Christ-rejecting scribes and Pharisees knew the place of his first coming. As a matter of fact, a little bit later in Christ's life, when they checked on his home place and found he was from Nazareth of Galilee, they immediately accosted Nicodemus and threw it back in his face and put the proposition up to him, why do you say this is the Messiah? Because the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Out of Galilee arises no prophet. The Christ-rejecting people of Christ's day knew the exact place of his first coming within five miles. All this uh, faint agnosticism is a fainted humility that's put on by the wolves in sheep clothing You want to act very humble to cover up their saliva-slobbering jaws. And these agnostics who don't know where they're going when they die and don't think you know about this and don't think you know about that, uh, who spend most of their time with Gene Dixon and Edgar Casey, are typical of the Bible-rejecting people of our today who simply reject the Revelation. The Revelation says you'll come to Mount of Olives. If you don't believe that, don't believe it's a free country. Turn the dial. It's a lot more to listen to. But that's where he's coming. That is all. The Schofield Board of Editors, including Pettengill, Gabeline, and Dwight Pentecost, including uh, Zodiades and Beam and the other 20,000 fundamental scholars, have all forgot to tell you that long before he lands at the Mount of Olives, he will come to Mount Sinai and travel up the King's Highway. This advanced doctrine is found only in the King James 1611 Bible, and was unknown to the Lockman Foundation of the Translators of the International Version. These Bible agnostics have no light in advance of what they've already read, and having only read the Schofield Reference Bible and Clarence Larkin, they don't really know very much what they're talking about. For the Lord Jesus Christ is said to come from Sinai, Judges chapter 5, through Mount Paran and Eden, in Habakkuk chapter 3, and come up the King's Highway, Numbers chapter 21, 21, 
and crossed the Jordan where Joshua crossed it and landed at the Mount of Olives. This road is therefore called the King's Highway in the Old Testament because the king is going to travel on it. I realize, of course, this is advanced revelation not found in the works of Hal Lindsey and Salem Kirbon and other people writing about the second coming of Christ. But after all, the most radical book on advanced revelation is the King James 1611 version and not the pulp literature that's being published today in the money-making gimmick of the bookstore uh, idea. This is something else. So we're dealing here with the second advent of Jesus Christ as to place, down at Mount Sinai where the ark was built, up to the wilderness where the ark went, down the king's highway where the ark went, across Jordan where the ark went, and into Jerusalem where the ark went. When in doubt, throw out 100% of the evangelical and fundamental commentators as simply not knowing what they're talking about. After all, let God be true and every man a liar. When the Bible clearly gives you the place, then that is the place. And what the majority of conservative scholars think about it is really immaterial. All right, first of all, at the rapture we'll meet him in the air. But at the revelation we'll ascend with him to earth and go up the king's highway and cross Jordan at Beth Abra, where he was baptized, and follow him in a triumphal entry from the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate at Jerusalem. This eastern gate has been walled up for more than a thousand years, and this eastern gate was the gate that Kaiser Wilhelm planned to walk through in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem in 1918. But having lost the war, the man who entered Jerusalem was General Allenby, which in Arabic means prophet of God, a very happy coincidence. And from that time to this, uh, Jerusalem has been liberated from foreign rule, and at present Jerusalem is a city in the hands of its original owners, the Jews, but the eastern gate is still cemented shut. The problem is how to get through it, which is a problem very easily solved by a warrior and troops who can pass through solid objects. One must never forget when the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead, the door is being shut. He came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you, Luke 24, having walked slap through a closed door having also demonstrated his power of his resurrection body to become visible and invisible at will by disappearing in front of the two in the road to Emmaus while he was talking with them and then appearing in the upper room in another location. Uh, for such a superman going through a cement, cemented gate is no problem at all. In the book of Ezekiel, we'll read that gate is to be shut. It's for the prince, and only the prince is going to go through it. And bet you a bottom dollar, the first person that will go through that eastern gate will be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. So at our rapture, we meet the Lord in the air, but at the revelation, we descend with him to the earth. These are two separate, distinct events. At the rapture, we're caught up to meet him. Psalm chapter 50, Song of Solomon chapter 2, Job chapter 37, Isaiah chapter 26, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15. The naive and gullible conservative scholarship of today that is, any textbook written by any recognized scholar, entirely overlooks the fact that the rapture is found in Job 37, the Song of Solomon 2, and Psalm 59, Isaiah 26, long before it's mentioned in the New Testament. And the peculiar, naive, and ridiculous fundamental scholarship when it talks about the rapture that confines itself to the remarks in Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 is not to be emulated by the Christian who desires serious Bible study. After rapture, we're caught up in the air to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and after Daniel's 70th week, we return with him to the earth at the Mount of Olives and come through Jerusalem going east to west to the eastern gate and crown him King of kings and Lord of lords on the Davidic throne of David, the throne of his glory, the Davidic 
Palestinian, Messianic, political, literal, visible throne at Jerusalem in Palestine. Now as to the manner of his coming. First of all, the advent is said to be in the clouds, Matthew twenty four thirty, in the glory of his Father, Matthew sixteen twenty seven, in his own glory, Matthew twenty five thirty one, in flaming fire, Second Thessalonians one eight, with power and great glory, Matthew twenty four thirty, in bodily form, Acts one to nine, accompanied by angels and saints, First Thessalonians three thirteen, and Matthew sixteen twenty seven and suddenly, without warning, Mark 13, verse 36. The man of the second advent, then, is in glorious power, in wrath and destruction, flame and fire, and this day of the Lord in the Old Testament is mentioned as being a day of gloominess, darkness, destruction, wrath, of fierce anger poured out. It is said to be everything negative that the inspired pen could write. The day of the Lord, the second advent of Jesus Christ, in wrath and power and glory, to destroy his enemies, is nothing to be scoffed out or taken lightly. It is the final and total destruction of the Gentile world powers headed up by the Roman Catholic Church, the National Council of Christian Churches, the Health Education Welfare Department, UNESCO, and the United Nations and international bankers. This entire Gentile system will disappear in 24 hours with the slaughter of 200 million troops at the Battle of Armageddon. Mention Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 14. The whole event is such of a fierce negative import that it is a taboo subject in the pulpits of America, and if you're listening to my voice and you attend any church that belongs to the National Council of Churches, you will never hear the matter mentioned, although it is the main theme of the entire Bible. The main theme of the Bible, by far away, I mean the theme mentioned more than any other times, is the theme of the kingdom. And in connection with this kingdom, God has a chosen king who will sit upon a throne reigning over this kingdom, and this second advent of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords to reign on this throne of his glory over the kings of this earth is mentioned more times in the Bible than the Lord's Supper, baptism, and church membership combined. And that pretty well shows you where Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone stood. There are more references of the second advent of Jesus Christ to sit upon a literal, Davidic, messianic, political throne of this earth than there are to the new birth or water baptism. It is the main theme of the Word of God. But, of course, it's ignored because it's negative. As one of these famous Christ-rejecting liberals said in the National Council of Churches, he said, The Bible is like a banana. You have to peel off what's no good and take that which is good and eat it. Do you know what he meant? He meant get rid of all the passes that speak against man and take only the parts that appeal to your ego. That's what's going on in these little Bible studies that use 24 versions. They're trying to strip the Bible of the parts they don't like. The modern liberal's Bible is an emasculated feather duster that is made up of 1 Corinthians 13, the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, and the 23rd Psalm. Or the main theme of the Bible is the Advent. This coming is said to be coming in the clouds of heaven, the glory of his Father with the angels, come in glory and flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory, coming with all his saints, and coming like a thief in the night, first of all to take out from the house the most valuable thing in it, 
Christ coming to steal out the body of saints, the body of believers who are the salt of the earth, and secondly, at the advent, coming to destroy the Gentile world system with all its reigning and ruling families, all its leading politicians, and all its important and influential ambassadors and representatives, premier, dictators, common turn, and leaders and rulers and chairmen. The whole works goes up in smoke in 24 hours. And that's the end of science and religion. Now, this is what the world doesn't want. The world worships science and religion and education. This world has great plans for itself. It plans to bring in the kingdom without Christ and spread man's goodwill to man of goodwill through ending man's inhumanity man by bringing in the ethnic adjustment of a total thrust, the dynamic whole, in the correlation of collaboration between the all that baloney. You know what I mean, Jelly Bean? All that stuff, they're going to plan all that without Jesus Christ. God's plan for this system is total annihilation. And this is negative, so it's not brought up in the pulpit these days. The tares, my dear friend, in Matthew 13 are not gathered together in the United Nations Assembly for blessing. They are gathered together to be burned in the fire. And in Zephaniah, you are told that God will gather all the nations together for the purpose of making an assembly of nations to pour out upon them his fierce wrath. Negative. And that's what the world can stand. The world can't face death because it's negative. It gets tired of sorrow and sickness because it's negative. It gets tired of inflation and taxes because they're negative. So when it comes to religion, they shut their ear and they think that religion is supposed to be an opiate, a positive drug to make you think beautiful thoughts to make you forget your troubles. My friend, you haven't seen any trouble. You see Jesus Christ come back and people hiding in the rocks and caves and crying, Mountains cover us from the face of the Lamb, for the day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? His coming is suddenly in wrath and power and glory, and it has one main mission, and that is the total destruction of art, education, science, religion, and every other god erected by a Christ-rejecting, God-hating, Bible-denying, Gentile world dominion whose ruler is Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Revelation 13, verse 1 to 18. And now we come to a very important subject, which has probably been overemphasized the place where it has lost some of its importance. But this is the matter of the signs of Christ's coming. Now, we weren't told to look for signs. We were told to look for the Lord. We weren't told to look for the tribulation. We were told to look for the Lord from heaven. However, anybody knows that if a man is going from Pensacola to Memphis, that when he sees a sign saying Meridian, Mississippi, 34 miles, and then it says Meridian, Mississippi, 22 miles, he's getting closer to Memphis. Although the signs are for Israel, still we can read the signs as we go. To put it another way, if you're traveling from Fort Worth, Texas, to, say, St. Louis, and you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says Chicago, 821 miles. And a little later you see a sign that says Chicago, 780 miles. And a little later a sign that says Chicago, 480 miles. You know you're getting closer to St. Louis. Now, we don't know the time and hour of Christ's rapture, but we don't know the sign of the advent. And the more these signs get fulfilled, the closer we are getting to the advent, and therefore by obvious deduction, the closer we are getting to the rapture, because the rapture precedes the advent. Therefore, all the nonsense about no sign preceding the rapture is uh, no theology of any kind. 
The signs are certainly interesting, and they're certainly well worth reading, because if they precede the advent, then certainly they indicate our proximity to the rapture. First of all, reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, we find 23 evidences of Christ's second coming. And you will notice that Paul doesn't call this advent or rapture, but simply last days. And these last days are not a reference to the tribulation per se. Paul says, In the last days perilous times shall come, and then he starts. Number one, perilous times. Will anybody question it? You say it's always been perilous times. Okay, we'll keep on. Men loving themselves. You say men have always loved themselves. To the degree they do now. Three, covetousness. You say men have always been covetous. Are you kidding? You realize that commercial advertising is based on covetousness, and there never has been a time in the history of the world when you've had mass media for advertising? Are you kidding? You realize the entire capitalistic system in the United States is based on creating a need and convincing somebody they need something, whether they need it or not? Tell me when that ever happened in the history of the world before. Why it couldn't happen before television and radio. It wasn't mass communications. Mass communications create covetousness. That's the purpose in mass media, to create a thirst and a desire for something you don't have. That's the idea. It's to get you to sin against God, who said, having food and raiment therewith, let us be content. That was the whole idea. Don't you get that? Don't you understand that television comes on from morning to night? It's putting objects before your eyes for you to want in hopes that you'll make some effort to get them? Four, boasters. Five, proud. You say men have always been proud. Did you ever check it out? Did you ever check out the number of terms, the time of terms I occurs in the speeches of Henry VIII and Richard the Lionhearted and Tancred and Bohemond and Godfrey of Bouillon and Saladin as compared with the number of times the word I occurs in the speeches by President Ford, Nixon, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, and the evening broadcast or telecast of Johnny Carson? Did you ever count the eyes? Interesting. Six, blasphemy. Seven, disobedient to parents. You believe it's always been this bad for disobedient to parents? Why don't you check the FBI and the juvenile delinquent authorities and find out? Did you ever read the statistics on age for criminals in America? You know, the average age for criminal America 200 years ago was over 30, and the average age back 100 years ago was over 26, and the average age now is under 20? Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, negative, truth breakers, negative, false accusers, negative, incontinent, negative, fierce, negative, despising good, negative, traitors, heady, high-minded, negative, 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 negative. Annie Darwin. The reference I'm reading to you refer to the end time. That is, the Bible prophesies degeneration. The state schools prophesy evolution and call a man that teaches degeneration a hate monger, a prophet of gloom, negative, pessimistic, antisocial. Well, somebody's right and somebody's wrong, oh, I wonder who it could be. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness negative, 
silly woman laden with sins, negative, divers lust, negative, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, negative. That's the forecast for tomorrow. Thunderheads, rain, snow, and hail simultaneously with lightning running along the ground. That's the prophecy. It had nothing to do with peace on earth, Gene Dixon, or peace on earth, Edgar Casey, on peace on earth, the last twenty popes, or peace on earth, the last summit conference, or peace on earth, the last salt agreement, or peace on earth, as prophesied by any deluded fanatic. It had to do with pure, unadulterated negativism from start to finish. Twenty-three signs of Christ's coming are negative. Showing the age doesn't end in evolution, it ends in devolution. It ends in degeneration. In Matthew 24, verse 5 to 7, and Matthew 24, verse 12 to 38, we find ten more signs. One, false Christ, Father Divines, Daddy Graces. False Christ, Moonies, Spoonies, Ramakrishnas. False Christ, people calling themselves the Vicar of Christ. False Christ. Wars and rumors of war, number two, as in the daily newspaper. You said there have always been wars and rumors of war. I'm afraid, my friend, you're a little bit addled. There have been 37 wars fought since 1945. I have them listed here. Place and date. There has never been a time in the history of the civilized world since the days of Noah when there were 37 wars fought in 30 years. Between 1945 and 1975, there have been 37 wars. There have been more wars instigated, promoted, and fought under the United Nations than under any warmongering fascist body in the world than ever the time in the history of the world when more people have been shot at and shooting each other simultaneously outside of World War I and World War II than the last 30 years. Wars and rumors of wars, famines, as in India and Africa and China, pestilences. You had the Black Plague in the time of the uh, Dark Ages, and you have plagues now going around regularly called different kinds of flu. <clears throat> then you have earthquakes, five. Iniquity abounding, six. The love of many waxing cold. And finally, Eating, drinking, buying, selling, building, planning, marrying, and giving in marriage. You say people have always bought and sold, they've always built and planted, they've always eaten drunk, they've always married and given in marriage. No, you better check them in your statistics, even for population-wise. There is more building and buying and selling going on right now than ever in the history of the world, by anybody's standards, even per capita, per population, and there are people in this world, if you travel across America, who must spend about half their time getting hamburgers and french fries and hot dogs. Boy, you talk about eating and drinking. You realize in the last Christmas issues of the five leading magazines that one page out of four has had a liquor ad on it? One page out of four, man. One of these periodicals that boasts several million copies every uh, week going out to various subscribers had been into something like 132 pages, 
and 132 pages, 32 of them were liquor ads, and 15 of them were full-page liquor ads. What are you going to do with those soft drinks? Where'd they come from? How'd you ever get along without them? What do you suppose folks drank all the time back in the 18th and 19th century? You said they had their fizz water. You reckon they sold like the selling these? You reckon that many people drank them? This country is eating and drinking itself to death. You saw they always had. No, you better check your doctor again for the number of people who are obese and overweight. Some statistics might help you out. All right, in addition to this, we have the return of the Jews to Israel, prophesied throughout the Old Testament. In addition to this, we have the rebuilding of Babylon, which is taking place now through the uh, handling of money out of Rome by the ten world bankers who are taking money at Rome and distributing it to their own religious constituency throughout the world so that if you belong to one church, you'll have enough to eat. If you don't belong to that church, you won't get any of the money. Now, these ten big shots take care of the food distribution at Rome, and by money from Rome, they plan to rebuild Babylon as a commercial city, Revelation 17 and 18. We have the return of the Jews to Israel. We have the desert being uh, irrigated now, and so it will soon blossom like a rose. We have sign after sign after sign after sign. We have the a gospel being preached worldwide, the King James Bible being translated in 800 languages, selling 809 million copies, more than 10 times as many as the Living Bible, the RSV, the ASV, the International Version, and the Jerusalem Bible combined. The King James Bible still, in spite of the propaganda against it, in spite of the attacks, in spite of the attacks on it by the fundamental schools, in spite of the hatred borne for it by the revivers of the new Bibles that are trying to get royalties off their sales, the King James Bible still sells twice as many versions as the Living Bible, the ASB, the New ASB, the International Bible, Phillips, the RSB, and the New English Bible combined. 809 million copies in 300 years, translated in 800 different languages. And finally, before the second coming of Jesus Christ, we have the outstanding sign before the advent, the revealing of the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who will appear as Satan manifest in the flesh, professing to be Jesus Christ, and going to the Holy of Holies at Jerusalem in the rebuilt temple, and sitting down upon the uh, mercy seat, and professing to be God. We'll talk about this more when we talk about uh, uh, demonology and angelology in our study of Satan, and our study of Satan's second advent when he comes to reign over Jerusalem for seven years in the temple, showing himself that he is God. The sign of the Antichrist, of course, are multiplied, and the best way to study this matter is to obtain our book from the Pensacola Bible Institute called Mark of the Beast, where we, give the, where we give you the Antichrist's name, his number, his sign, his mark, his height, his shape, his number, his letter, his sign, and his favorite color, and his favorite Bible. The Antichrist is more clearly marked in the Scripture than any other character outside of Jesus Christ, and the modern Christian books in the bookstore and the bookstand that you buy about the Antichrist do not even touch the subject. The Antichrist is connected with the letter X. He's connected with the color uh, that you find so prominent in Alexandria, Egypt. He's connected with the Vatican manuscript. He has a name, sign, number, mark, letter, a place, a Bible, a church, a race, a nationality, and the Bible tells you the whole thing without any guesswork being involved at all. You may obtain a copy of that book of Mark of the Beast by writing to the Pensacola Bible Institute, Box 6021, 
in Pensacola, Florida. All right, here we complete our first uh, two lessons on the second coming of Christ. On our next lesson on the theological seminar, uh, lesson number 40, we'll talk about the results of Christ's return. This will take up the next two broadcasts, broadcasts 40 and 41, the results of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you faithful to his word. And good day.